Good morning and God's blessing to each of you. I don't often get emotional like this, but there's something happening here this morning that I can't explain. I don't know if I've ever met the brother, but God laid upon my heart this morning to preach about the church. And in my notes, which the brethren have not seen, I jotted down when I preached this at home a suggested hymn for Christ and the church. And when the song leader gave the number, I'm not acquainted with the numbers in your songbook, but with anticipation I followed the numbers and I thought, I wonder which song he's going to choose. And he chose for Christ and the church. You know, sometimes this happens when we preach, sometimes this happens, and sometimes it doesn't. And I'm not saying that when it doesn't, that God's not in it. But when, when God brings together a service like this from beginning to end, it's, it's, it's a God thing. And, and I'm just moved with, with emotion this morning at what God is doing here in this building. I found it very difficult to sing, and I was glad that the rest of you could go on and, and sing. But the, the message that I, I felt led to share here this morning, uh, coming from a, a strange place, uh, I'm mixed with emotions as well, choosing ra- rather to be at home with my wife and the home congregation, but feeling the call of God to minister to schools and churches across the U.S. and Canada, uh, we as a team from CLE uh, are here in your midst, and we want to allow God to continue to use us for his honor and for his glory. The text verse this morning is a well-known verse from Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where Jesus there with the disciples and especially with Peter, he said, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And then we read in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, speaking to the church, it says, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people. Why? That you should show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Mercy. The church of Jesus Christ is foundational throughout the New Testament. Therefore, I move to preach this morning about the bride of Christ, the church. But maybe not just on what the church is, but maybe a more narrow, practical look at the church with one question. And I realize that we represent many different congregations, and I don't have a clue how many that might be. And so I'd like each of us this morning to take what God lays upon our hearts and and take it home with you with this question. Do you love the church? More specifically, do you love your home congregation? And what are you doing? 
to prove that love. Do you love the church? Are you happy and content where God has planted you? In your local congregation? And if not, why not? Also, there's many other aspects of the church that you may think I should have included, but did not. And I'm not attempting this morning to exhaust this topic, as there's so much more could be said. I'd like to begin with looking at what is the church? What is its meaning? What is its purpose? What is this all about? And again, the first thing I'd like to mention is the church belongs to Christ, first and foremost. Repeating a portion of that verse, Jesus said, I will build my church. And it pains me when I hear of churches being referred to after the name of a leader. And I'm glad that we don't hear that as much as maybe we did in my boyhood times. I don't think that's right. It's God's church. The church belongs to Jesus, the founder of the church. We read in Ephesians 1, verse 20 and following, which he, God, wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come, and hath put all things under his feet, and gave him to be the head of all things to the church. Gave it, let me back up. And gave him to be the head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And that body principle has been illustrated so well here this morning, how the body works together. There are names for the church. There are two Greek words I'd like to investigate just briefly. The English word church comes from a Scottish word, kirch, or in German we would say the kirche. It's ultimately derived from the Greek word kuriakos, meaning belonging to the Lord. Kurios meaning Lord. We also use a Greek word, ekklesia, which we usually mention as being the called out ones. Called out from the world, called out to be a separate people, a peculiar people, a royal priesthood and holy nation. That is what we are called out to. This Greek word is used 114 times I could find in the New Testament. Three times it's given just for a, a, an assembly, a secular assembly of any kind. And two times it's referred to as the nation of Israel when it talks about them being a congregation, a, a grouping of people But 109 times it's talking about a local church and only a few times to what we refer to as the invisible or the universal church made up of all born-again believers uh, across the face of the world. And that is such a blessing. I also find it significant this morning that we're not meeting in a church house. And I'm going to use that for an object lesson. The, the term church should not be a building. It's people. It's alive. It's not a building. 
For two and a half years after we moved to West Virginia, we met just in our home, in our basement. You know, we don't need a building. I believe it went almost 300 years after the time of Christ, even though they had met at first maybe in the synagogues. But it went till the third century before they actually started meeting in a church house. But the church was alive and well long before that. The church was going on without a building. I'd like to talk about the invisible and visible church. And I think we understand that concept, but I'd just like to touch on it briefly. Did you ever think about it? That for a brief time after Pentecost, the visible and invisible church was one and the same. All the ones in the visible church were part of the invisible church, the universal body. But that changed as they began to move outside of the city of Jerusalem. But soon there were people in the church that did not know each other. And that's how it is here. I know very few of you but have the confidence that you are a part of the church. And so we can fellowship together. We can come from, I don't know how many states and and congregations are represented here. But we are part of that church. We are part of individual congregations, but we're part of the larger body of Christ. The body of Christ is not a congregation. It is an invisible body made up of visible parts. And so that is there for us to enjoy. Unfortunately, though, there came a time when there were people in the visible church who were not a part of the invisible. And you know, that danger is alive and well today. Might there be some people in our congregations who look good, act right, but their heart is far from God. May that not be named once among us. All born-again believers are a part of the church. And it's invisible only that we do not know the extent of it. We do not know the boundaries of it. We do not even have a list of names. We don't have a membership list, a membership role. It encompasses all cultures, all nationalities, all people groups. And it will only become fully visible when we all get together in one place around the throne of God and worshiping the Lamb. In Revelation chapter nine, verse, uh, chapter 7, verse 9 and 10, a, a glimpse of glory where we read, And after this I beheld, and lo, a great multitude, which no man could number, of all nations and kindreds, and people and tongues stood before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes and palms in their hands, and cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and unto the Lamb. We sang this morning as well, Be silent, be silent, for holy this place. This altar that echoes a message of grace. 
gathered together before the throne of God. All nations and kindreds and peoples and tongues. There's two more words that are sometimes used to illustrate this idea. And that is the word organism and a very similar word, organization. What is the difference? An organism is simply a body, a living body, which again was illustrated this morning. When my stomach hurts, I hurt all over. When one body suffers, we suffer together. We come together to build a house, to gather together, and we can do that. But an organization can be any group of people gathered together for any kind of activity. It could be the city council, could be the 4-H club, could be Congress, could be your workforce, your school. And any of all of these are in some way organized so that they work together. You have leadership, you have responsibilities, you have maybe a code of conduct, a standard to follow. You have guidelines to be a part of that organization. That is what we mean by an organization. And so what is it that constitutes the organization of your local congregation, your local church body? Like any other organization, there are church leaders. I see leadership taking leadership here in this meeting, gathering together. There are members. There are bylaws. There are rules of conduct. There are ways of joining and ways of leaving by excommunication or by forfeiture or just running off. And I believe the church in, in, in Acts was such an organization that included membership. You know, I, I fear today there's there's a growing movement among us that church membership doesn't mean what it did at one time. There's, there's a growing <clears throat> a lack of seeing the need of becoming a part of a local congregation. Well, I cannot find a verse in particular that says thou shalt be a member of a congregation. I believe the, the idea is woven through Scripture, and especially there in the book of Acts. Different passages mention that when they were converted, it says there were added unto them. They were added unto the number. I'll read just a few examples in Acts 2. Then they that gladly received the word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Skipping down to verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people, and the Lord added unto the church daily such that should be saved. Acts chapter 5, and believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes both of men and women. And in Acts 11:24, it says, for he was a good man and full of the Holy Ghost and faith, and much people was added unto the Lord. Furthermore, Scripture is very clear in the methods of removing some from the church. 
through the process of excommunication. And so church discipline presupposes church membership. You know, I don't, I don't discipline your children. When our children were at home, I disciplined them. They, they belonged to me. There was a reason why I would discipline them. When I was a high school teacher and principal, the, the children entrusted into my care belonged in my class, and I was given the responsibility to discipline as needed. So whenever there is a, a need of a grouping, there's also responsibilities and, and ways of, of leaving and ways of cleaving. Membership requires commitment. Membership requires accountability. And it brings with it responsibility. And so as I open up myself to my brothers in accountability, we then become subject to group discipline and group uh, pressures and, and so on. But let me be very clear this morning that the church is much, much more than an organization. It is an organism. It is a living organism. It is alive. It has, it has life. And it brings forth more life. That's one of the ideas of an organism, whether we're thinking of, a, of a, our bodies or insects or plants. They're living, and, and the parts are working together, and all of that as it ought to do. Next, I'd like to look at the purpose of the church. We again heard this morning the purpose of the church is, is to be there when we have needs, to come alongside to rescue, to help, to bring groceries and fill the van, to build a house, to build barns. There are reasons why we have the church. So what is the purpose of the church? The church has a reason for existence, both for the individual and for the collective body. Uh, Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. I'd like to read a, a portion there. In Ephesians chapter 4, it's hard to break in here, but I think I'll start in verse 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers. Why? For the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying. And that word edifying is simply the building up. So the purpose of the church is to edify, to build up the edifying of the body of Christ. And the goal, verse 13, till we all, as members, come together in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect, a mature, a complete person, a perfect man unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. I like that phrase. The measure of the stature. You know, so often I am tempted, you are tempted. We measure ourselves among ourselves. Well, I I can do a little like brother so-and-so. But here we don't do that. We measure ourselves according to the stature of Christ. The perfect example. Unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. That we henceforth be no more children... Tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine 
by the slight of men and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up unto him in all things which is ahead, even Christ. Verse 17, 16. From whom, from Christ, the whole body, fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying, the building up of itself in love. That is the church. That is the church of Jesus Christ. Oh, we are so blessed. So first of all, I believe the church is built up to edify one another, to bring glory to God. And so we come together to worship. Let us never forget what all God has done for us. Let us never forget what He continues to do for us. It's not about us. It's about each other. And what we can do to make life a blessing to others. And so we gather together to worship. We gather to adore Him because He is worthy. Revelation 4, verse 10 and 11, The four and twenty elders fell down before Him that sat on the throne and worshiped Him that liveth forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Number two, purpose of the church is the instruction of believers and the keeping of the ordinances. The ordinances are meant to be shared. And I don't mean this to be humorous, but imagine with me the following. What would be the satisfaction of baptizing yourself all alone or washing your own feet or having communion by yourself? There's nothing there. And so it's not about us. It's about the body, the collected body together and how we can practice what he has called us to do. The body comes together to learn from each other. We have a priceless treasure of being a part of this bride of Christ, this body. As iron sharpeneth iron, so we gather together to study the Bible and to hear the word preached and to encourage each other, to exhort one another and encourage one another. As we read in Hebrews 10, verse 22, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful that promised. And then verse 25, And let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as we see the day approaching. Do you need the church? Fellowship of believers. 
You know, again, in the age in which we find ourselves, there are more and more people not going to church. Not going to church. They've been disillusioned, maybe even hurt by people in the church. And so there are many who are wondering, do we really need the church? And that's not a new thought. For years, some have stayed at home and watched some tele-evangelist on TV or listened to sermons on radio. And that may not have affected us. But now we're also bombarded with that temptation to just listen to a sermon on tape, on CD, or on some other media. Fellowship. Do you enjoy fellowship? Now, I know we're made up of different kinds of, of personalities. Some of us are very outgoing. Some of us are very shy and withdrawn. And so, for some, coming to a fellowship meal might be more not seen as important as it is for some. Because we're made differently. But, as different as we are, we all need each other. We all need fellowship. We all need to be there for each other. The Greek word for fellowship is koinonia, which is the idea of sharing and partnering or having something in common. New Testament fellowship enjoy, involves that sharing of Christian life with, with many others, with the followers of Christ. I'm going to read a quote and then try to uh, give you a visual. It says, Talking about the things of God with each other, telling and hearing testimonies of the work of the Spirit of God in our lives, serving the Lord and His people together, worshiping God and praying as one people, extending to and receiving from one another the love of Christ, These are the fibers of the fabric of fellowship. What are some of the highlights there? Talking about the things of God. Telling and hearing testimonies of what God is doing in your heart. Serving the Lord and his people together. Worshiping God and praying as one people. Extending to and receiving from one another the love of Christ. That's fellowship. But there's a very real danger that we get fellowship and socializing mixed up. And I'd like for you to think of two concentric circles. You have a big circle and and then you have a smaller circle. I'd like to suggest that the big circle is socializing. The smaller circle is fellowshipping. Let me explain that. In those two, we see that all fellowship is part of socializing. But not all socializing is fellowship. See the difference? I'll repeat that. In those two concentric circles... All fellowship is in the circle of socializing, but not all socializing is in the circle of fellowship. It's a more narrow description coming together. 
And so fellowship is not equal to socializing. Socializing does provide opportunity for fellowship to take place. But in and of itself, it is not fellowship. Now, I think I've heard the word here today that there's going to be a fellowship meal. And that's good. But is it going to be a fellowship meal or a socializing meal? Uh, That's up to you. That's up to all of the participants today, which it will be. The group in and of itself does not make that distinction. It's how we interact with each other, whether it will be fellowship or whether it will be socializing. Another quote. Christian fellowship also extends far beyond socializing. Eating coffee and donuts or cookies and ice cream in a fellowship hall does not necessarily mean that koinonia has taken place. Number four, the church is not just about us. And so we need to be thinking about evangelization. We need to be thinking of spreading out into all the world. The primary parts of the Great Commission are found in Matthew chapter 28 and Acts 1.8. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you alway, even unto the end of the world. In Acts 1.8, and ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost is come upon you. And ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Go ye into all the world. I'd like to look at another aspect of the church. I want to come back to the original question for the last part of the message and, and personalize for you as much as you can with the question. Do I love the church? Do I love the church? Repeating the verse from 1 Peter 2, But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should go forth, show forth the praises of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Do we have any idea how special we are to God? What do you think about that? Do we have any idea how special we are to God? Chosen, royalty, priesthood, holy. Now maybe we trip over that word peculiar. Nobody likes to be peculiar. We don't like to be different. And some of us may struggle with that more than others. But we are chosen because God loves us. We are royalty because we're part of the kingly family. Sons and daughters of God. Priests interceding for each other. 
We are called to be a holy people, modeled by God himself. Where he says, be ye holy, for I am holy. But peculiar? It doesn't always feel good, does it? Do I love the church enough to be peculiar? To be different? I read the words written by Brother Val Yoder in a newsletter. He wrote this. As I studied the history of God's people, I realized that they relished the fact that they were peculiar people. Their hearts leaped for joy that their peculiarity was due to the unmerited relationship they had with the Lord Jesus Christ. Their values unveiled a whole new mindset. They lived with an eternal perspective. Their difference began with something very core to their makeup. They loved the beauty of holiness. They loved the author of holiness. They were the honor students selected to model the lifestyle of the teacher. Friends, that's what we're called to do and to be. The honor students that are called to model the lifestyle of the Lord of the church. So now maybe the question isn't so much whether we love the church as whether we love the Lord of the church. Jesus Christ, the head of the body. I read in Ephesians 4, I'm going to go over to Ephesians chapter 5. And here we have the picture that is often used at a wedding. But we have here, I'll start reading in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, and he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands, in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. And now verse 26 and 27 is the heart of what I'd like to pull out of this passage for today. That he might sanctify and cleanse it. That's the church. That's us. With the washing of water by the word... Verse 27, that he might present the church to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. I understand there was a wedding in the community yesterday. And I'm going to suppose that the bride came with a wrinkled dirty dress now why are you smiling that's not what brides do and so it's very important that the church as the bride of Christ take the same care that he might present it to himself a glorious church not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing but that it should be holy and without blemish. 
How many people does it take to wrinkle the church? How many people does it take to blemish the bride of Christ? And so everyone who is a part of the bride carries a very important responsibility to keep the church pure and spotless and holy. Pure and spotless and holy. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of the water by the word and present it to himself a glorious church without spot and wrinkle. Verses from Exodus 19 from the Old Testament. Times haven't really changed. Now therefore, if you will hear my, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Most likely, when Peter was writing, he may have been thinking of this verse. He may have been quoting this verse and expanding it into the New Testament time uh, period and, and making application to the church. Finally now, I ask one more question. Are you loyal? Are you loyal to the church? Are you loyal to the Lord of the church? What do you owe to Christ, the Lord of the church? And what do you owe your local body of believers? Is that asking too much? Hebrews 12:28 Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved let us have grace whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear that's my closing admonition let's go forth and serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear after all that Christ has done to purchase us to redeem us by his precious blood what more can I do? What more can I say? Truly, we owe him our all, but especially serving him with reverence and godly fear. Let's stand together for prayer.